2: Welcome to another exciting edition of The Robinson Show. I'm your host, Ed Robinson. Today, we have sports orthopedic surgeon Dr. Jeremy Burnham, health and fitness professional Santia Deck, and also I have my MMA and wrestling analyst Eric. We'll discuss the career and passing of Jim the Anvil Neidhart. We'll have more when we come back from the break. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Robinson Show. Available now on audiobook format, Flying High to Victory, a recap of the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles season. Follow the Eagles on their triumphant journey as you witness players such as Carson Wentz, Nick Foles, Torrey Smith, Jay Ajayi, Nelson Aguilar, and Zach Ertz. Pick up your copy of Flying High to Victory, available for digital download on audiobook at bandcamp.com, cdbaby.com, and nimbit.com. Welcome to The Robinson Show, everybody. I'm your host, Ed Robinson. The sports field is very diverse. You have the athletic side of things, you have the broadcasting side of things, but you also have the doctoral side of things. The human body is a very complex thing, and it it works wonders, and you can also see how it all comes together, how it's shaped, and also when things, from time to time, you, you hurt a bone or you hurt a joint, and we have a gentleman on here to talk about the field of sports medicine and what he does for a living, and it's certainly phenomenal. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome sports orthopedic surgeon Dr. Jeremy Burnham to The Robinson Show. Dr. Burnham, welcome.
3: Thanks for having me, Ed. I appreciate it.
2: How did the journey begin for Dr. Burnham? Where did it all start for you?
3: You know, I think it started for me the same, same type of story or same type of place that it does for a lot of orthopedic surgeons. Uh, you know, in high school playing sports, I injured my knee, and never really thought much about injury before then, but all of a sudden when you can't do what you love to do, you start asking questions and you start trying to figure out how do I get back out there and really was amazed at the amount of knowledge that the doctors that took care of me at the time, the amount of knowledge they had, how they were able to tell me to rehab. And throughout that process of rehabbing my knee, I realized that sports medicine is it's a team sport. There were a whole lot of people that were involved with me getting healthy and getting back on the field. And that's the first thing that really sparked my interest in sports medicine, and made me realize it's such a collaborative effort and, and something that I wanted to do.
2: Sports is such a diverse field, as I mentioned earlier, but sports medicine is, in particular, we're seeing more and more people get into the field. What do you think it's the reason for that?
3: Absolutely. I think that the, the benefits of sports medicine are numerous. You could probably, we could probably rattle all 50 or 60 right now without even thinking about it. And I, and I realize that people... Now are noticing? Okay, we want to get out there. We want to be healthy. In addition to that, there there's more access to sports. I think so. It doesn't matter how old you are, or you know what your athletic level is. There's some type of sport that you can get into, and I just think that you see the participation in sports increasing across all age levels, uh, and really all geographic regions throughout the U.S. and um, and that's one of the things that interests me about the field is that you know there you may have. An elementary kid that's getting hurt and needs to get back on there, or you may have have a professional athlete, or you may have a weekend warrior that's been running marathons for the last twenty years, and so it's always a challenge. It's always variable. You don't see the same thing over and over very much.
2: By looking here at your educational background. You earned a bachelor of science degree in biology from Louisiana State University LSU, and then you earned your doctorate, uh, your Doctor of Medicine from the LSU Health Sciences Center in Shreveport. And then you did, you participated in a residency program in Lexington, Kentucky at the University of Kentucky Medical Center. And then you currently serve as the captain of the U.S. Army Reserve Medical Corps for the United States Army Reserve. And you did a fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I want to talk a little bit about this fellowship you did at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center.
3: Being at the University of Pittsburgh for fellowship, was really a phenomenal time for me, and, and that I got a lot of exposure to collegiate and professional athletes of multiple different sports when I was there. Uh, and that was, that was one of the things that's been really rewarding to me is to see how people do that on a high level and all that it goes into keeping somebody healthy and, and then getting them back after they've had an injury.
2: You are the captain of the U.S. Army Reserve Medical Corps. Tell me how does this work because we know the military is it's it's a lot of discipline and it's a lot of time and energy that the soldiers put into it. If you can tell our audience out there if you can what are the procedures that goes into being a captain of a of a medical corps?
3: Just to clarify, I'm my rank is captain in there and I'm not I'm not captain of the whole thing and that's just purely my rank in the army reserves, but the way that the way that I got started with that is, is essentially out of my desire to serve and to give back to the country, and so at some point during my training, I began to think back of, uh, you know, how fortunate and blessed I've been to have had exposure and some of the opportunities that, that came my way, I have some family members that serve in the military, and thought about the sacrifice, and... and and all of the guys are going out there and kind of they're kind of the reason that I've had these opportunities so I made a personal decision that somehow I'm going to get involved and serve and give back and I was getting to the point where I realized I have some pretty specialized training in sports medicine and in orthopedic surgery and that maybe there's a way that that would be of use um, to the military and when I really started research and I found out that sure enough you know the the military needs orthopedic surgeons and so I certainly, uh, you know, I grew up in in Baton Rouge and in the South Louisiana area. I certainly wanted to come back and be around family and and have a regular practice, but I wanted to figure out a way to get involved. And so the Army Reserves offered me the opportunity to do that. And uh, so, you know, it's something that it requires a commitment, a monthly commitment, being involved, going out there, um, and be involved in drill and some other things that are out there, some administrative tasks, and then certainly, when the time comes to be deployed and to actually go out there and take care of the soldiers that are that are out in the field that are kind of protecting the country and and that's that's my goal, and that's what drove me to do it and I felt that orthopedic surgery sports medicine is a good skill set there are, if you think about the military, it's uh you know soldiers are athletes out there, and they're putting a lot of wear and tear on their bodies and so I think that I have something to offer people like that.
2: Excellent. I want to talk about the specific ligament tears in the knee. I was going through your biography and doing the research, and again, you spe- in sports medicine, you have a wide variety of surgeries that you perform from the ACL surgery, knee surgery, and hip arthroscopy. I want to talk, explain to our audience about the specifics of the ligament tears. You have uh, PCL, ACL, MCL, the LCL, and the MPFL. Explain to our audience uh, the specifics and and what those are, the definitions of those ligament tears. Uh,
3: Absolutely. And I I can tell you've done your research because you nailed that. So, um, and that, you know, that list is pretty much sums up a lot of the ligaments in the knee. And that's one of the things that's a real interest to me. And, As I went through my training, you know, the reason that I went to Lexington, Kentucky, and the reason I went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for the UPMC Sports Fellowship was because I was interested in the knee, and I found that some of the best knee people in the country and the world uh, were at those two places, and and so that was my drive, And, and I really am focused a lot on the knee, and as you mentioned, hip arthroscopy as well. The knee is probably the most common sports injury that requires surgery, and that's across all sports. It's not really limited to one sports, and so there's a lot of people that end up with knee injuries. And unfortunately, a lot of times, these are ligament injuries, which means that they they usually require something to be done. Some ligaments can heal with bracing and rehab. Some have to be surgically reconstructed. Probably the ligament that most people are uh, most familiar with is the ACL. Uh, That's short for anterior cruciate ligament. That's a ligament in the middle of the knee that controls the rotation and translation of the knee. And it's the most commonly injured knee ligament requiring an operation. You see it really across all sports. And people associate it with football often, but it's actually probably more common uh, proportionally in soccer, even basketball, volleyball, different sports like that. But you see people even, you know, uh, uh, badminton or uh, ping pong. Uh, competitive ping pong, people tear their ACL. So it's a really important ligament. It controls the stability of the knee, the rotational stability of the knee, and so people have a hard time doing cutting or twisting tasks if they tear their ACL. And so that's something that I've really, really put a big focus on. I've done a lot of research on the ACL, and that's one of the big focuses in my practice. The ACL is one of those ligaments that probably 30 years ago, we really didn't know how to address it, and we didn't have very good return to sports rates. And what I love about the ACL is that Uh, Over the last several years, especially the last five years or so, there have been some really big advances in ACL surgery. We used to uh, not know exactly where the ACL should be attached in the knee, and now we have some technology where we go in and we know exactly where that ACL is supposed to go. So we've adjusted our surgical techniques over the last several years to do more of what we call an anatomic ACL, meaning I want to put that ACL back in the exact spot that it was in before it tore. We also individualize ACL surgery more now. So used to everybody got the same surgery. Now we individualize it according to the athlete and their own anatomy. And that's probably one of the things that I enjoy the most about the ACL is the challenge of, of really matching the ACL surgery to the patient and to the sport that they're playing and all those types of things. There are you know other ligaments in the knee. One that you commonly hear about is the MCL, the medial collateral ligament. That ligament is also important in the knee. Fortunately, it's in a place in the knee that oftentimes those tears heal by themselves. And so that's one of those tears that it's it's a multifactorial team approach. If somebody injures that, that ligament, they're going to spend a lot of time with their physical therapist, with their athletic trainer, and with their coaches getting back there and getting functional in the field.
2: What about the LCL? Is the When you tear an LCL, what does the LCL stand for and what is the recovery process for that torn ligament?
3: That's a great question. The LCL is another one that you commonly see injured across multiple sports. When people tear their ACL, they they have a lot of trouble. If they don't have an LCL, they have a lot of trouble getting around and, and having a stable knee and making quick cutting movements. The LCL stands for lateral collateral ligament. It's on the outside of the knee. The MCL is the medial collateral ligament on the inside of the knee. Unlike the MCL, which oftentimes can heal itself, the LCL often doesn't. And so, the LCL we treat, well, oftentimes by reconstructing or re- recreating that ligament. And so it doesn't have much of a healing capacity. And so if you tear your LCL and you have an unstable knee, oftentimes we have to go in there and take another ligament and recreate the LCL. That's a several month process, just like ACL rehab is a several month process. LCL rehab, it takes several months. And one of the things that we have learned, both LCL and ACL surgery, over the last, you know, five to ten years probably, is that it takes a lot longer for these ligaments after ligament reconstruction to be ready to get out there and compete again. We used to say that people could go back in three months after they had an ACL surgery, and now we're realizing, and I don't know if most people out there realize it, that it takes a lot longer. The average time uh, with somebody that's had an ACL reconstruction in the NFL, the average time before we allow them to go back and play football again is 11 months. So that's almost a year. And LCL rehab is pretty similar. Oftentimes you see an LCL tear in conjunction with an ACL tear. And so the rehab really kind of parallels each other. But we've learned that we have to give people a lot longer to let that ligament get strong, let the body to incorporate the ligament, and then to actually retrain all of the muscles and the nerves in the legs and the hips and even the trunk and the core to be able to fire in a coordinated fashion again so that people can go out there and play sports and not, um, not re-injure themselves.
2: Wow, that's very informative. And again, you you certainly know your stuff with the educational background that you have. And again, it says that you've treated athletes from the NCAA, the NFL, the NHL, Major League Soccer, the NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, professional ballet dancers, and weekend warriors, as you mentioned earlier. So definitely, you're someone that has done it, and you're definitely continuing to do it. So Dr. Burnham, uh, quickly, are there any future projects that you're working on?
3: Yeah, you know, one of the things that that we continue to work on that I think is going to be an ongoing project for us is doing research on uh, how to improve ACL surgery and ACL recovery. And when we look now, the return to play after ACL surgery is pretty good. It's a lot better than it was probably 10 years ago. There's a lot going on, a lot that we're learning about it. Uh, I would like to have, we don't have this or even close to this right now, but we would love to have 100% of people that have ACL surgery get back to playing the sport that they want to play, and that's kind of our goal. And so really doing research from a lot of different areas to try to find out how do we best treat people with ACL tears. Uh, We are also working, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned working with professional athletes, and I think the thing that that taught me is how much it matters when you have a good team of people That are taking care of an athlete that has an injury. And really, it doesn't matter if that person is a professional athlete or a weekend warrior. They have the same injury. You need to treat them the same way. And so one of the, the big things we're doing at the Bone and Joint Clinic in Baton Rouge is trying to continue to build our sports medicine team that has people from multiple disciplines so that if you come and see an orthopedic surgeon with a knee injury or a hip injury, you're not only being treated by the orthopedic surgeon, you're going to be treated by a physical therapist, by an athletic trainer, sometimes sports massage, chiropractors. There are a lot of people that are involved in getting, getting someone, getting an athlete, not only back on the field but back on the field at 100% of what they were before they got injured. And I think that that's a, a, a long-term and short-term goal that we're working on is we're trying to really assemble the best team and the best people to get involved with that.
2: Quickly, Dr. Burnham, where can they find you on social media? And if you have a website, let our audience know about that.
3: Absolutely. Uh, my my website is jeremyburnhammd.com, J-E-R-E-M-Y-B-U-R-N-H-A-M-M-D.com. Uh, Instagram is jeremyburnhammd. And if you uh, search my Facebook page, it's also jeremyburnhammd.
2: Well, you heard it from him. He's a gentleman that knows his work and he's very knowledgeable in his field and continuing to make strides in the advancement of sports medicine we have that sports orthopedic surgeon dr jeremy burnham dr burnham thank you so much and if you want to come back on the robinson show let us know
3: thank you it was an honor
2: we'll be back right after this Available now on audiobook format, Flying High to Victory, a recap of the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles season. Follow the Eagles on their triumphant journey as you witness players such as Carson Wentz, Nick Foles, Torrey Smith, Jay Ajayi, Nelson Aguilar, and Zach Ertz. Pick up your copy of Flying High to Victory, available for digital download on audiobook at bandcamp.com, cdbaby.com, and nimbit.com. Welcome back to The Robinson Show, everybody. My next guest is a personal trainer that's not only made waves in her athletic career, but also in the field of health and fitness. And we're going to get more from her about her upbringing and also things that she's doing to keep herself in shape and its other side projects that she's working on. Welcome to The Robinson Show, everybody. Personal trainer, Santia Dex. Santia, welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be a part of this.
2: Every story has a journey. Can you tell us where young Santia grew up and what was her upbringing like?
0: Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Greenville, South Carolina. I grew, I pretty much grew up in Houston. Um, as soon as I was born in Greenville, I moved to Houston when I was about, probably about six months. Um, and from there, um, I stayed in Texas till I was about 18. And then I came to Atlanta, uh, which is where I reside now. Um, but as a child, um, I had a very, very close-knit family. Uh, we were all athletes. All um, my brothers play football. Um, they all were running backs, which is actually funny because I'm a running back now. But I was always, um, always, you know, into sports and into fitness, and that kind of just translated into my life overall. But um, I, I always had um, a passion just to pretty much just push myself to be the best version of myself from the time I was a young child. Um, I grew up in an entrepreneur-type family. My mom owned her own business, and so did my, my stepdad at the time. He owned uh, radio stations and my biological father owned a hair salon. So we were taught at a young age to always strive to work for yourself, to build your own empire, to build generational wealth for your future family. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of the model I
2: go by now. Excellent. We're going to talk about the entrepreneurship model in just one moment. You mentioned that you grew up in Houston, Texas. The state of Texas, as we know, is a very competitive state when it comes to football and sports, but particularly Football. And you mentioned that you currently play running back in a league. We'll talk about that in one moment. But can you tell me, for those that have may not competed in an athletic competition in the state of Texas, what is it like?
0: Um, well, Texas is definitely the mecca for pretty much football and track. So if you're a track athlete or you're a football player, you're going to find the best competition there. And, you know, honestly, when it comes to re- getting recruited, you know, for colleges and things like that, they always start in Texas, <laughs> definitely, like I said, in football track. And, honestly, the heat, the heat is what makes us so great. I mean, we're out there in 100-plus weather, you know, by the time we're, like, five or six years old competing, you know, in track meets and football games or basketball games or whatever. And, um, you know, that kind of, honestly, builds for you. If you can compete in Texas, honestly, you can really compete anywhere. I mean, we just, we're built for it. <laughs> we're great to be athletes.
2: I want to piggyback off of what you said about the weather. Now, I'm from the South, and you grew up in the South as well, so we know how to handle heat and humidity. Do you think weather makes a big difference in terms of how athletes perform, say, uh, athletes that may come from northern states or maybe from the West Coast? Do you think that athletes from the South have an advantage in competing in in any kind of weather?
0: I definitely do. Um, The only downfall for us, (laughs) honestly— Is when we go somewhere where it's cold, because um, I know for myself, like, you know, when uh, when the winter hits, and, you know, we're traveling for track meets, and we have to go into like, North Texas and stuff, it was horrible. You know, my body didn't really know how to handle you know, that that cold weather, um, but I think that's kind of anybody's issue, no matter where you are from, you know, whatever whatever state or whatever, it just depends on kind of, you know, what you're used to and, and how your body can adjust to it, but I do feel like um, I don't know, it's something about about athletes from the South. We're just we're just a different way.
2: I can't really explain it. Okay, now let's go ahead to your introduction to sports and health and fitness. You mentioned that you ran track and field, but were you your introduction to sports was it through the school system or was it through the parks and recreation departments growing up?
0: Um, my introduction to sports um came from uh really summer track. Um, because my first sport Actually, let me take that back. My first sport was actually tennis when I was four. And that was just like a, I guess it's like a little tennis league for little kids or whatever. Uh, but then when I turned uh, six, I got introduced to summer track. And then, of course, I started, you know, playing sports in school from there. But um, it was definitely, it was like a, yeah, it was. It came from kind of like a club, like a sports club that kind of, you know, started teaching me about how to actually interact with other people. But if, if I'm being completely honest, like, how would my – like, he actually a competitive where it came from with my brother. Um, I have a twin brother, so my older brother would always put me, you know, me, me and him against each other in different competitions, you know, whether it was running, us playing pickup football, or, you know, whatever. We were just always competing. So he kind of prepared me for sports in a way that not even the school system or uh, summer leagues or anything prepared me, you know, or whatever because he taught me how to actually have grit, you know, and how to persevere because, of course, me being a girl, it was kind of – it was tough at times keeping up with my brothers. But he always said, you know, if you're going to come out here and play with us, you're going to play like us. And so, (laughs) honestly, I think that's why I'm so different when it comes to to football and everything else because I was out there doing speed and agility drills. I was out there getting hit, you know, and everything. So, I just – I was raised different, you know, when it came to, to
2: sports. So now let's talk about The industry that you're currently in In the uh, health and fitness industry Where you work as a personal trainer We know that black women In the fitness industry Has grown for a long time now And especially since the advent Of social media Social media has really blossomed In terms of introducing A lot of black women Into the fitness industry Of various body types And various workout methods I want to know What do you bring to the table Being in the fitness industry?
0: Oh, I think women definitely different. Um, it's definitely the fact that I'm, uh, like, a current athlete. Um, I'm still, you know, competing and stuff. And then just the background that I have um, being a, a collegiate athlete um, and currently in the process of going pro and, um, you know, just being raised the way that I was and being around different types of um, athletes and trainers and different things like that throughout my life, I think I just have a different type of approach to training. And, um, I definitely specialize in the core, um, running track all my life. I developed a very, very strong core. So I take a lot of the workouts that I did when I was, you know, running, you know, in college and just things that I've learned over the years from different coaches and trainers and just made it my own. So it's definitely a, a different, uh, I guess, uh, technique that I, I, I've developed and, um, it, it definitely works for me and it, uh, you know, it works for anybody else that comes in and trains with me. So, uh, trains with
3: me.
2: So, you know, it's a, uh, yeah. Okay, I wanted to ask, you mentioned that you ran track in college. What school did you run for?
0: I went to Texas A&M Kingsville.
2: Out in South Texas. I was a one, two, and four my one runner. Oh, wow. You were very, very busy during your time at uh, Texas A&M Kingsville.
0: I definitely was.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, now that you mentioned, we touched briefly about you being a black woman in the fitness industry and also talking briefly about your uh, collegiate career. I want to talk about the importance of working out and eating right. It seems that, you, you know, you can't have one without the other, but a lot of people do one thing, but they neglect the other. What is the relationship like, in your opinion, in terms of the importance of working out and getting the right nutrition?
0: To be completely honest, uh, that's probably the number one question I get when it, when it comes to just fitness in general. But diet is literally 95% of, you know, getting in shape, losing weight, uh, gaining weight, whatever you're trying to do. It, it all starts with your nutrition because you can be working out seven days a week, but you're going home and eating McDonald's or eating pizza and wondering why you're not making any progress. Um, same thing, you can be working out, um, doing all types of exercises that, you know, supposed to help you build muscle mass, but if you're not eating, uh, first of all, the, the correct amount of, you know, food that you need to eat per day to actually gain muscle mass, then it, it, you're just wasting your time. So um, you can't really have one without the other. But honestly, if you have a great diet, that is the solid foundation for kind of whatever you're trying to do you can't really you can't go around that you can't get that you know it's it is what it is and people hate hearing that but you know you can't expect to have results without doing the necessary you know groundwork
2: okay while we're on staying on the subject of working out and eating right the clients that you have do you recommend a specific diet do you recommend say a a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet or or are you do you just basically tell your clients just to be more disciplined
0: um, I don't really try to, you know, persuade anybody to have a certain type of diet because everybody's different. Um, I just, you know, try to tell them, you know, to, yeah, have a very disciplined diet. You know, I help them with, you know, milk, and different things like that, So kind of what, whatever their needs are or wants are. But, you know, I always do try to at least let, you know, speak to people about uh, veganism and stuff like that because... Definitely, people that that have you know health issues, or they're trying to lose weight, or they're in a you know a, a, a time in their life where you know their you know their health is is isn't isn't too well, isn't too good because of you know their lack of exercise or not. Um, and I was actually vegan for six months, and it changed my life. Um, but it's not for everybody, to be honest. Everybody can't you know they don't have that discipline or. They don't have the, the finances to kind of keep up that lifestyle. But, um, yeah, I try to try to, you know, meet people where they're
2: at. All right. While we're staying on the topic of food, uh, food deserts are a big problem in the black community and a lot of our inner cities and even in the rural communities. The lack of access to healthy food is ridiculous. Are you a part of uh, an organization or are you spreading awareness about eliminating food deserts?
0: You know what? I, I I'm not a part of any organization, but I definitely try to uh, to speak to, um, you know, I, I speak at schools, um, you know, and different thing, and I try to, you know, raise awareness, you know, because I do know you're right. I mean, honestly, African Americans we're raised to uh, think that fried chicken and, you know, fried everything is is just that's just what we're supposed to eat, um, not knowing that that's what's actually killing us and causing us to have all these health issues. So when I go and speak to these kids or go and speak to these uh, these women or whatever, I try to, you know, break down the fact that, you know, you're having these issues because of, you know, <laughs> the way you're eating, the way that you cook your food, the way that your grandma your mom, cook, you know, whatever, they, they cook their food. And it's like, you know, this is you can actually change that by doing this, you know. And I try to make it, you know, as simple as possible. I, I don't try to say, hey, you need to just, throw everything in your kitchen away, throw everything in your refrigerator away, because I know that's not possible. But I feel like baby steps eventually lead to the overall goal. So I just try to, again, try to raise awareness about, you know, things that they can do differently, you know, things that these kids, you know, they can make better choices at lunch, you know, because we know lunch is is not the best. It's getting better, though, but... You know, I try to just tell them, hey, this is what you can eat so that you can perform better after school. You know, when you're going to football practice or track practice or soccer or whatever. So, yeah, I just try to raise awareness as much as I can. All
2: right. Now, let's get into your athletic career. You mentioned earlier that you play football. Tell the audience a little bit about it.
0: So, actually, with football, um, I no longer play tackle. I actually play flag, but I did play uh, women's tackle. Outside, uh, I guess, the LFL now, um, and it's pretty much uh, just a all female tackle of league. Um, and it was, I think it was founded probably about 10 years ago now. Um, but I actually stopped playing that and I transitioned into rugby. So now I play rugby. And now I'm in the um, really the position to actually go to the team and play per- professional. So that's actually uh, my focus right now. But football was definitely the foundation to even getting me to where I'm at as far as rugby. Because I learned about tackling, I learned about, you know, how to take contact, how to give contact, um, and just, you know, my having, you know, good hands so that I can catch the ball and run. So, um, yeah. But that's my main focus right now is just trying to see how far I can go with the rugby and hopefully make the Olympic team, you know. So maybe you guys will see me in uh, the 2020 Olympics.
2: All right. I want to stay on the topic of rugby for a second. When I think of rugby, rugby is very popular in Australia, New Zealand, and in Europe, but we, we're starting to see more and more African-Americans slowly creep into the sport of rugby. For those that have never watched a rugby game before, just explain the point system and the similarities to American football.
0: So I'll say this. I'm very new to rugby myself, so I can't really break it down too well because I'm still learning myself. I've only been playing for about six months now. Um, but I can say definitely it's similar to football, um, I guess, in ways um, that when it comes to like um just the, the context, um, but it's different because in football, you're, it's not a fake. Uh, football, they kind of tackle a little reckless. You know, sometimes you see people going in with their head. Uh, con- concussions are very, you know, I guess rapid among, you know, all these, these football players nowadays. So with rugby, you to actually uh, rap. So you can't go in and hit somebody, you know, in the neck or hit somebody high. It has to be low. You have to wrap and make sure that, you know, you're kind of um, using them to break your fall. So, you know, it eventually, you know, uh, just, it, it's just different. And, and then also the difference with it as well is honestly just the, the speed of the game. Uh, rugby is nonstop. You don't have breaks. Um, you know, it's, it's literally you play seven minutes straight or you play uh, two 40-minute halves and it's nonstop. You have, like, five – Chances to you know to people in and out, but that's about it. So you have to have a lot more endurance. Um, you have to have a lot more speed endurance too, because if you run down the field, you got to make sure you're back to play defense. You don't have a break. It's not like oh, timeout. There's there's none of that. Um, so it's a it's a bit more uh, intense, I would say. But honestly, I enjoy rugby probably <laughs> like 20 times more than football. It's I can't even explain it. It's just it's amazing. Um, but it's definitely growing in the U.S. Um, So I'm excited about it. Um, So, you know, we'll see what
2: happens. It's definitely interesting because I know you said, you mentioned earlier that you're going to be preparing for 2020 in Tokyo. So definitely it's something to, uh, we'll look forward to that, watching you on that and we'll have to have you back on in the period of time when you're preparing for that. So let's get to uh, future projects that you're currently working on.
0: Okay. um, So I have a lot of different things in the works right now. A lot of it I can't actually even talk about at this moment. um, But I do have... um, a few TV opportunities, um, coming up, um, and then I have some overseas stuff that I'm currently working on where I'm going to be speaking, uh, to some kids in different countries about, um, just women empowerment and, um, also teaching people about the power of social media and how to, uh, burn themselves and actually create a business online, um, and then I have some, uh, different... Uh, modeling opportunities coming up in other countries as well to be a, a part of some different magazines, uh overseas. Uh so a lot of a lot of great things going on. Um it's all definitely blessings uh from God. And I'm just walking through all the doors that he opens for you know for me. Um and I just want to continue to uh to build my empire and have some of the my future kids.
2: Absolutely, that's wonderful to hear. And um as you mentioned earlier about entrepreneurship it's so important that we have entrepreneurship in our community, not just on the health and fitness side, but on, on all sides as well. So it's great that you're doing big things and not just waiting for opportunities, but creating opportunities. That's 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 a lot of fun to hear. Yeah, that's that's
0: definitely something that I try to preach to um, to the youth is not waiting for things to have. You have to be you know proactive sometimes. And um, I know that that's something that that's not really taught nowadays because. I mean, if you think about just the system of education, if we're just taught to really go to school, get a good job, have a family, and that's it, they don't tell you about, you know, the things that you can do to in between that, you know, creating, creating your own jobs, creating generational wealth, being able to travel the world and, you know, retire kind of whenever you want to. I mean, it's all about the work that you put in. I mean, because there's people out here nowadays retiring in it like they're 20s, you know, they're good. But it's because they created their own, their own wealth. Um, so that's just something that I try to try to preach to these children. Is I mean, you can do what you want to do. You don't have to follow that system of go to school, get a good job, get have a family, and die. Oh, and retire when you're like sixty five. and You have a few years left to live and enjoy that retirement money. So I mean, um, but I could talk about that stuff all day. But uh, <laughs> anyways, that's just kind of my my opinion about everything. Is just you know, create your own you know, your own type of, you know, world, whatever type of world that you, you see yourself living in, or, you know, that you want created, go out there and get it, you know, don't wait for somebody to give you something because sometimes you might be waiting forever. So, you know, that's my, my feel on that.
2: All right. Now for the listening audience out there, can you tell your social media platforms and a website?
0: Yes. Uh, you, you guys can find me on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at Track baby one and that's T-R-A-C-K-B-A-B-Y-001. And you can also uh, find me on, on uh, QueenOfApps.com. And on there, that's my actual website, so you can see everything that I have coming up. Um, you can see where I'm going to be when I'm uh, on tour and when I'm going to have different fitness classes. Um, and uh, you can also uh, read up about me. I have my bio on there and everything. So
2: Athlete, model, entrepreneur, and she's preparing for... Possibly trying to get a spot on the Olympic rugby team 2020 in Tokyo. Watch out for her because she's doing big things. Santia Deck, thank you so much for being on the Robinson Show. We'd like to have you back on. Just let us know whenever you want to come back on. All right.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Coming up, we'll have more of the Robinson Show. You stay tuned. Available now on audiobook format, Flying High to Victory, a recap of the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles season. Follow the Eagles on their triumphant journey as you witness players such as Carson Wentz, Nick Foles, Torrey Smith, Jay Ajayi, Nelson Aguilar, and Zach Ertz. Pick up your copy of Flying High to Victory, available for digital download on audiobook at bandcamp.com, cdbaby.com, and nimbit.com.
3: No other teams. (laughs) Pretty boy. The time has come. (laughs) The time is here. It's now. It's the foundation. We've already (laughs) smashed out and disintegrated the little killer bees. (laughs) That was easy. Right, Hitman? And now... Oh, it was easy. It was a piece of cake. (laughs) And now the little British pups. Uh, Pups! Pipsqueaks! Pups! Foreigners! (laughs) Nobody messes with the foundation, and the time has come. (laughs) Right, man?
2: Welcome back to The Robinson Show, everybody. I'm your host, Ed Robinson. The professional wrestling community has taken a lot of hits within the last month and a half with the recent deaths of Brickhouse Brown, Brian Christopher, and Nikolai Volkov. And you can add another legend to the list, Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Here with me to talk about the legacy of the Anvil as well as preview some of the matches for this coming Sunday SummerSlam is my MMA and wrestling analyst, Eric. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, Ed. Let's get right to the news about Jim the Anvil Neidhart, one of the members of the Hart Foundation, passing away at the young age of 63. Let's start off with we know him as a former two-time WWE Tag Team Champion with Bret the Hitman Hart with the Hart Foundation. And then also he had a successful career... Post Hart Foundation, Reunite with Owen Hart, and also the Second Hart Foundation with Owen Hart, Bret, British Bulldog, also Brian Pillman was with them for a period of time. Tell me, what are your thoughts about Jim the Anvil Neidhart and what his contribution was to wrestling?
1: Uh, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, you know, the combination of him and Bret Hart, it was an odd combination because, you know, Bret Hart was more of a technical wrestler, not a great submission wrestler. But you know his background was he was trained by Stu Hart as well, so I'm pretty sure him and Brett ran into each other a few times being trained by you know Bret Hart's father. But I just thought he, you know, his wrestling style was was I liked his wrestling style. He he was he was like an animal, more like you know the animal still. Like he would just powerhouse you, slam you, and he would hit you hard. And uh, he was uh growing up. You know, I watched him and Bret Hart. You know, I mean, when they won the tag titles for the first time, again, I think they beat the British Bulldog and a Dynamite Kid, I believe it was who they beat for the first time. I think on Superstar Wrestling or superstar, I was, you know, I was a kid, but I liked them as a tag team, and um, Jimmy Hart as a manager. Just it filled it out. Bret Hart, Jimmy Applegate Hart, and Jimmy Hart. It was, it was a, I think, a real good tag team that I didn't. If Brett didn't go on to be a singles wrestler, I think the Hart Foundation would have captured more titles than they did.
2: He was an acclaimed track and field athlete in a high school in California. And then after graduating from high school, I didn't know this until recently during the research on him, that he pursued a career in the NFL and he played and participated in practices and preseason games for the Oakland Raiders and the Dallas Cowboys. Following his release from the Dallas Cowboys, as you mentioned earlier, Eric, he traveled to Calgary, trained with the legendary Stu Hart, and he began his professional wrestling career in 1978. From 1978 to 1985, he was a member of Stu Hart Stampede Wrestling, where he worked with the Hart family, and of course, we know about Bret the Hitman Hart. During his early years of wrestling, he also had a relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling, where he did some shows, and also he worked with King Kong Bundy. For Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1983 and then he worked for Mid-South Wrestling for a short period of time. Now I didn't notice uh, reading this it said that him and Butch Reed held the Mid-South Tag Team titles for two and a half months. And then after that he worked in several other promotions before joining the WWF in January of 1985. So you could say that Jim the Anvil Neidhart when he arrived in the WWF in 1985 him alongside Bret Hart, they got there at the right place at the right time because that's when the rock and Wrestling Connection was taken off. The first WrestleMania, he got there at the right place at the right time.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's I think that's when Stu Hart sold Stampede Wrestling to Vince McMahon. And I believe the package was Bret Hart and Jimmy Avonight Hart coming to the WWF at the time. But I think when he first came to the WWF, I believe he was managed by uh, Mr. Fuji. Then he went on to be managed by Jimmy Hart. But you know, growing up, you know, he was a uh, he was a he was an entertaining wrestler. Just his interviews were good. You know, tugging at his beard and his mannerisms. I mean, I enjoyed watching him as a kid. And I thought when him and Bret Hart went their separate ways. I thought he, he would maybe make a little noise as a singles wrestler, but I'm not sure. I don't think he was too healthy at the time. I think he may have been nursing injuries, and that's why Bret Hart went on singles competition. But uh, I always wondered why he never really got a shot at, you know, superstardom as a singles wrestler, and I thought he would have been a pretty good one.
2: All right, well, let's continue on with his first, his first run in the WWF. Him and Bret Hart were managed by the Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, and the Hart Foundation, they made their pay-per-view debut the following year in 1986 at WrestleMania 2. And I know you remember the 20-man battle royal that featured professional wrestlers as well as NFL players. That was the one that Andre the Giant had won. Do you remember that battle royal? And can you tell us a little bit about Jim the Anvil Nighthart being in it as well as the star-studded cast that, was, that participated in the battle royal?
1: Yeah, I remember that battle royal. I believe um, I might be wrong, but I believe Refrigerator Perry from Chicago Bears were in it. Was he was in that rumble? Wasn't? Yeah, he? Yeah, he
2: was in that battle royal. That's correct.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that uh, that um, battle royal WrestleMania two. Uh, a lot of old school wrestlers, but uh, yeah, Andre won it. Bret uh, Hart was young. If you look at that uh, WrestleMania, my boy, he was young. And to be what he is today and to see Jim Danville Neidhart, you know, going down the road he went down.
2: All right, well, you mentioned earlier about the Hart Foundation, Brett, and the Anvil really finding their stride. And this is, I call it, and we call it as well, Eric, the golden age of tag team wrestling in the WWE as well as uh, their rival, the NWA, and later becoming the WCW. The late 80s was when the Hitman and the Anvil found their stride. On a February 7th, 1987 episode of WWF Superstars, the Hart Foundation won their first WWF Tag Team Championship by defeating the British Bulldogs, Davey Boy Smith and the Dynamite Kid. And then later on, they lost the belts on November the 7th of that same year to strike force Rick Martel and Tito Santana. You talk about some tag team titans during that, that period of time. Now, the Hard Foundation, they wrestled in another battle royal at WrestleMania 4. They didn't win that one. But then 19, 1988, at the 80, 1988 SummerSlam, they lost to Demolition, Axe, and Smash. I know it's a tag team that you really, really, really talk about. It's a team that we followed and still talk about for many years. And then later on, they had a successful match that they won at WrestleMania 5. Where they beat uh they teamed up with Hacksaw Jim Duggan to beat Dino Bravo and the fabulous Rougeos in a six man tag match. That was a two out of three falls match. Then after in that period of time, that's when both the Hitman and the Anvil they wrestled in singles matches. And then Around 1990 they began another feud once again with Demolition at SummerSlam 90 on August the 27, 1990, The Hart Foundation would win the title for the second time in a 2 out of 3 falls match against Demolition. Now Eric, I want to get your thoughts on this because we talk about the golden age of the tag teams, we talk about The Hart Foundation, Demolition, Strike Force, and the all of the teams that were great during that period of time, you could put the Legion of Doom in there as well. Where do the Hart Foundation stack up in, in terms of those tag teams?
1: Oh, you got to put them right up there. I mean, the Rockers. I mean, I remember when the Hart Foundation fought the Rockers, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, when the ropes broke in the ring and the Rockers won the tag titles, but McMahon didn't want them to keep the belts because of the way they won, the way the ropes and all broke. You got to do your research and see about that. So they put the titles back to the Hart Foundation, but uh, man, I mean Twin Towers. I mean you had, like you said, Strike Force, Towers of Pain. I mean, a colossal connection. I mean, a tag team scene at that time was at its peak, and Hart Foundation was right up there with the greats. I put it. They should be in the Hall of Fame as a tag team. I think they had a four or five year run together where they beat some great teams through the years, and uh, the fuse with Demolition was classic to me. I mean, you had the purple. And the the pink and the black versus the all black demolition. Who, who was a totally different character. Who was Smash Mouth against you know Heart Foundation demolition. The, the names don't even sound like they should be together. Heart Foundation demolition, but they're matches masterpieces. And I mean that 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 was great times of tag team. And or do I wish they would bring that back?
2: You're absolutely right about that. So after winning the titles for the second time. Of course, as you mentioned earlier, Brett and the Anvil, they split up, and then after that, they did the singles thing. We know Brett Hart went on to mega success as a singles wrestler in the WWE. The Anvil, not so much. I mean, he had some singles competitions. He had some matches, but it just didn't turn out the way as uh, he hoped that it would have been the first time around. So then he goes to Japan for a while, and he goes to WCW, for a while, did that didn't work out as well. He wrestled in ECW for a short period of time, and then he returned to the WWF in 1994. He returned this time; and he was Bret Hart's cornerman for his WWF title match against the Intercontinental Champ Diesel. So he returned for that. He was also helped out Owen Hart for a while. Joined on his team during the Survivor Series of that same year. Then in 1996, he appeared in some WWE programming, but he really got back in the swing of things in 1997 when they had the Hard Foundation reunion. This time, it was not only Brett the Hitman Hart and also Jim the Anvil Nightheart, but you also had the British Bulldog and Brian Pillman involved in this. Now, when you saw this new Hard Foundation being reformed, what were your thoughts on that?
1: I liked it. You know, um, a, a new stable came along. But an old stable, you know, um you had Owen Hart, you had the Bulldog, you had Jimmy Alvon Eidhart, Brian Tillman, Bret Hart. It, it was it was at that time I liked it. I really liked it. But you know, if you look at the names on there, you know, the British Bulldogs, Jimmy Alvon Hart, Owen Hart, Brian Tillman, all things they had in common. They're you know, they're all deceased now. The only ones left is Bret Hart, you know, and I know bret has gotta be, you know, in a sad place right now, knowing that the last of the Hart Foundation members is is, is him. And a lot of these guys, they passed away at a young age, 63, I think. Neidhart passed away. Pillman was real young. Oh, and the tragic death he had. You know, Bulldog, he wasn't that old neither. So it's uh it slows the show, man. You just got to take care of yourself. I like that Hart Foundation when they brought him back, you know, Bret Hart and you know the feud with DX and Shawn Michaels. I mean, it was awesome. You know, I'm really glad they did do that though. That was awesome to see.
2: That was some of the beginning stages of the Attitude Era because you we talked about the Hart Foundation reunion, then with Shawn Michaels, Triple H, and China and Degeneration X. That was really the start of the attitude era right there it was it was it wasn't attitude but it was right at the beginning of that period because Stone Cold Steve Austin was coming into his own as well so certainly it was a lot a lot to look forward to during that period of time
1: I enjoyed it but there's a quick story I wanted to tell I don't want to jump the gun and Bret Hart when he was inducted to the Hall of Fame he told a story about Jim DeAnvil Hart that tells you who he was Jim DeAnvil Hart. Bret Hart, Hulk Hogan, Sergeant Slaughter, and it was the Road Warriors hanging out in the casino, drinking, having fun. It was all feeling tipsy. Then Vince McMahon walked in, and he was already a little tipsy from where he came from. And uh, and um, Hulk Hogan told the Road Warriors, I bet you you can't do your finisher on Vince McMahon, you know? And at the same time, Bret Hart's like, oh, yo, I got to see this. So they all started talking about it. So all of a sudden, Animal picked up, Vince McMahon in the air. And Hart came off the top of the table with a little nice little cap, knocked him over, and Hogan and Slaughter caught McMahon. And at the same time, Namble, Jim D. Anvil, started grabbing his beard and said, yeah, the Hart Foundation would have done it for real. And so Bret Hart said, I think I need to get out of here before this escalates. And he said, before he knows it, Jim D'Anvil and had Hart had McMahon up in the air, and Bret Hart said he came off that table and liked to take his neck off and that's who the Hart Foundation were. They was a no nonsense tag team. And you didn't want to be fooled by them because they could beat you at any time. And uh, I thought that was a pretty cool story because that's like I told you, Neidhart, He was he was a tough wrestler, and um, I bet that was a sight to see that night.
2: Absolutely, you're right about that. So his contract had he was released by the WWF on December second of 1997. In 1998, Jim the Anvil Nighthart returned to WCW again. His time there was very short lived. He formed a team with the British Bulldog, but that didn't work out, and um, he was only there for maybe several months, and then he was released right after a match on September the 22nd on an episode of WCW Saturday Night, where he and the British Bulldog lost to Stevie Ray and Vincent. Now, he returned to WWE in 2007. He was a part of the 15th anniversary of Raw on December the 10th, 2007. They participated in the 15th anniversary Battle Royal. He made it to the final five, but he was eliminated by, his. Here's, here's a blast from the past, Skinner. Yeah. <laughs> he, got Skinner. Elimi- he got eliminated oh, by, old oh, Skinner, that's right, man. Tobacco chewing and everything. So he got eliminated by Skinner. We still saw him on a lot of WWE programming. He made brief appearances on the reality show, Total Divas, which his daughter, Natalie, is on. Tell me, we know that... Hard wrestling family, it's uh, like a third or fourth generation wrestling family. But Jim Neidhart is someone that's like a an extended family member, and now his daughter Natalia is followed in his footsteps. Tell me a little bit about Natalia, what you think about her career so far.
1: I think they could push her a little more. You know, she's been around a while. She's won a couple of titles. She just she had the women's title not too long ago, but uh, I think they need to push her a little bit. You know, I like to see her. Main event against Charlotte Flair for a championship, you know, because, you know, Bret Hart beat Ric Flair for his first world championship. So, you know, to have it, you know, renew some rivals here, that would be pretty pretty nice to see to see that happen. Um, I think she's a good wrestler. She's very talented. She has a lot of her father in her, you know, a lot of mean streak in her. So, you know, her and Ronda Rousey are buddy-buddy right now, but who knows what's going to happen with that, you know, Relationships don't stay long in WWE friendship-wise. And you get a feeling they're going to wind up feuding eventually. And um, I think she could have an even better career. And I think she's probably had a borderline Hall of Fame career already. So, you know, let's see if she could capture a couple more championships.
2: Yeah, let's hope so as well. So, um, unfortunately, um, the news came down that he had passed away as a result of falling. They said, according to the Pasco County Sheriff's Office, he fell at home and hit his head. And I didn't know this, and maybe you can elaborate more on this. They said, that according to the Associated Press, his brother-in-law and former pro wrestler Ross Hart said that Neidhart had suffered from Alzheimer's disease, and it was believed that he suffered a grand mal seizure. I didn't know that Jim Neidhart was suffering from Alzheimer's. Were you aware of this? No, I wasn't aware, but I knew
1: he had, I don't know if it was heart issues. He had health issues, but I never knew it was, you know... That, but uh, I mean, it probably would happen, you know. I've, I've heard it was probably a heart attack. Maybe they probably did a little bit more research and found out a little more. But yeah, you have a seizure, you can fall and hit that ground, and you can hit your head. But yeah, I, w- I was not aware of that. It was never really brought out to public. Maybe it's something he didn't want people to uh, know. If that's what they diagnosed, I'm pretty sure the doctors are probably pretty accurate. So yeah, I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. So again. The tragic loss of Jim the Anvil Neidhart at the young age of 63. A former two-time WWF tag team champion with Bret the Hitman Hart. They were known as the Hart Foundation. Final thoughts on the career of Jim the Anvil Neidhart.
1: Great tag team wrestler. I think he'd be more remembered for his tag team wrestling in Japan and Stampede Wrestling. Of course, the WWE Bret Hart. By what I heard, he was a, a loving husband loving father, so, you know, it's sad to see it happen at 63, but his legacy will live forever, and, you know, I just glad I got to watch him as a kid, you know, I watched him at his prime, I watched him at his best, lifetime of memories.
2: And speaking of a lifetime of memories, some more memories are expected to be created this Sunday at the 2018 SummerSlam, so let's get right to it. We have the singles match for the Universal title between Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns. Brock is defending his title we know about these two Eric, we know about the history, we know about at the uh, their match at WrestleMania and at the greatest Royal Rumble. What can we expect from these two at SummerSlam this Sunday?
1: I expect a very physical match. I expect I expect a brutal match. I don't expect it to go long, and I expect Roman Reigns to be hovering over him with the Universal Championship. I think it's time. Reigns has been so close. It's, he's the uncrowned champ because he beat him at the Greatest Royal Rumble. His feet hit first. But I think SummerSlam, Roman Reigns gets the championship.
2: Okay, now the next match we have is for the Raw women's title between Alexa Bliss and Ronda Rousey. This feud has been heating up. What can we expect from these two this coming Sunday?
1: Oh, it's gonna, I think it's going to be an a okay match. I, I just think the character they're going to portray, Alexa Bliss, is to be kind of running and scared of Charlotte I'm sorry not Charlotte Ronda Rousey but uh I just I don't think Ronda's gonna win the belt I think Natty is gonna interfere in a matchup and cause her to match I think a turn's gonna happen I believe that's what's gonna happen
2: all right so our next match we have is the singles match for the Smackdown Championship between AJ Styles and Samoa Joe AJ Styles has was involved in the last several pay-per-views and matches against Shinsuke Nakamura. Now they have him up against Samoa Joe. These two are former alumni of TNA. Your thoughts on this match? Because it seems like we've got two different styles going head-to-head in this contest. Uh, I'm confused
1: about this match. It just came out the blue. Out of nowhere, they say, here comes Samoa Joe to face AJ Styles at SummerSlam. I don't understand why, because... I. I mean, at one point, Samoa Joe wasn't even wrestling. He was out nursing an injury, and all of a sudden he comes back, and he wreaks a little havoc, and now he shoots straight to the championship match at SummerSlam. I don't, I don't know. I like Samoa Joe, but I, I don't understand what, what was their plan in the doing that. I mean, maybe they're just trying to burn up some time for AJ Styles because I believe he's going to retain the title.
2: Okay, our next match is. I think this is this is gonna be one of the best matches on the card. The tag team match for the SmackDown tag titles between the Bludgeon Brothers Harper and Rowan against the New Day. We know what what type of dominant tag team the New Day is. We've seen them in action for a while now, so we know what they're capable of. But man, the Bludgeon Brothers Harper and Rowan, these two are not to be messed with.
1: Oh yeah, they'll retain the titles. I, I don't, I don't see them losing at SummerSlam. I really don't. Um, Nothing against New Day. I like New Day. They were four-time tag champs, I believe, so they're going to put up a great fight, but it's at the end of the day, like you said, you know, the Bludgeon brothers, they're just just too, too mean, too aggressive, and too good. I don't see them losing. I see them retaining. All
2: right, our next match we have for the Money in the Bank contract is Braun Strowman against Kevin Owens. Last month at Extreme Rules, we know what happened with these two. Braun did the unthinkable. He threw Kevin Owens off the top of the the steel cage and onto a table. Kevin hasn't forgotten about this, but this time they're going to do it for real. What can we expect in this match?
1: It's going to be a good match. Kevin Owens is a good wrestler. Braun Stoneman is a popular wrestler, so it's going to make for a good match. Braun Strowman wins. After Roman Reigns wins the World Championship, uh, the Universal Championship, Brian Strowman cashes in at SummerSlam and beats Roman Reigns and wins Universal
2: Championship. All right, this next match, me and you, we kind of have a difference of opinion on this one. This one's going to be for the Intercontinental Championship between Dolph Ziggler and Seth Rollins. These two have faced each other before, not just on pay-per-views, but also on WWE programming. I always like when these two get together. Their styles are very similar. What can we expect from this one?
1: Not sure. I think it's going to be a, a good match because they like you say they use their styles are awesome in the ring. But something tells me the title's going to be retained again. I just don't I don't see Ziggler losing it unless um, McIntyre turns on him or something. You know I think that's eventually going to happen. Is it going to happen at SummerSlam? Remains to be seen.
2: Now here's this next match that could change hands for the SmackDown Women's Championship. Featuring your girl, Eric Carmella, the champion, against the last kicker, Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair. Charlotte is long overdue. I think it's about time for Charlotte to possibly regain that title. But Carmella has had an edge. I mean, Carmella's been getting a big push as of late. Your thoughts on this triple threat match?
1: Uh, I don't don't think they're going to let Carmella lose it yet. I believe what's going to happen is Becky Lynch and Charlotte somehow are going to start feuding. And them two worrying about each other is when Carmella's going to take the opportunity to win the matchup. And from here, I think Becky Lynch and Charlotte are going to have a little beef. But I think she's going to retain. I just I just, I don't see Becky Lynch winning it. I would love to see Charlotte win it for the sixth time. Believe me, I'm rooting for that. But I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't think.
2: All right, so the next match we have is going to be for the Cruiserweight title, Cedric Alexander and Drew Gulak. Now, we know Cedric is one of the top Cruiserweights in the company. Cedric is a high flyer. Drew is no pushover and, and definitely someone that can hold his own in his own right. Your thoughts on this match?
1: I think the titles may change hands. Uh, that's going to be a high-flying affair there. That's going to be an entertaining match. I don't think it's going to be on the actual card. I think it might be on a pre, the pre-show, but... It's, that's good enough to be on the card in my opinion, that's good enough to be right there center stage of SummerSlam, some nice good Cruiserweight Championship match I think uh new Cruiserweight will be crowned
2: Alright, here's this next match that's definitely, I think this could be a show stealer right here for the United States Championship Shinsuke Nakamura versus Jeff Hardy, these two are very similar in styles, both are high flyers, both are risk takers, Shinsuke just completed his rivalry with AJ Styles, now he's Looks like we could have a rivalry between him and Jeff Hardy. What's your take on this match?
1: Yeah, it's going to be a good matchup. I don't think Jeff's going to win. I think Nakamura Nakamura's going to retain the title. But uh, I think it's going to be an interesting match. It's going to be a a match where you're going to want to see more. And I think WWE may give you a little bit more of that match. I think it's going to go on from here, possibly close in the Survivor Series with these two. Because, like you said, both high flyers, similar type wrestlers i think it's going to make for some good matches
2: all right the next match we have on the card is a a rematch from extreme rules finn balor versus baron corbin again finn balor one of the top stars in the company going up against baron corbin baron's uh, character have him in a quote-unquote managerial role on raw tell me your thoughts on this match and do you think we could see see this thing going into uh, later in the year
1: I hope not. I don't know what they're doing, Barrett Corman. I hate, I hate his character. I hate what they got him doing. Wrestles in a, a button-up white shirt and some, some dress pants. You know, I don't, I don't know what they're doing with him. And I don't know. I think they need to stop it and redo his character. What's going to happen is he's going to wind up getting ran out the WWE because of bad character and bad planning for him he's a good wrestler you even said yourself in the past i mean at one time i felt like he was world championship material now i just don't know what he is so i think it's going to be a um, a good match because he is a good wrestler but his character is going to take a lot away from him because you know a lot of wrestling is also about character so yeah i don't know what they're going to try to get out of it but i I do pick him to win the match
2: all right now this next match i think this is going to be one of the best ones on the card Daniel Bryan against The Miz. These two gentlemen are superstars in their own right. Daniel Bryan has been making waves since, he, since his return to the WWE. We know about The Miz. He's always relevant. The Miz is always present. The Miz, along with his wife, Maurice, they're always a fixture on WWE programming. And The Miz and Daniel Bryan are going to lock up this coming Sunday at SummerSlam. Your thoughts on this match?
1: I mean, this could easily be the main event WrestleMania this upcoming year for like a championship, I mean, like the world championship. Miz is a former world champ. Daniel Bryant's held the title on several occasions himself. This could make out to be a really good matchup, and this could start spinning off on something nice, and maybe WrestleMania we could see these two in a main event. That's how I feel about this match. It's going to be a good match. I like The Miz, always have liked The Miz. And Daniel Bryan's always been the underdog his whole career. And I think he's going to come into this matchup and come out with a victory. But I still believe this match is going to be probably one of the top matches on this card. And I'm really looking forward to this match.
2: It'll take place this Sunday at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York. The 2018 SummerSlam. It's one of the premier pay-per-views for the WWE. It's up there with Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, and Survivor Series. SummerSlam, one of a kind. And that's my MMA and wrestling analyst, Eric, talking about the legacy of Jim the Anvil Neidhart and previewing this year's SummerSlam. That will be this Sunday on Pay-Per-View. E, as always, man, we got to do it again. Thanks so much.
1: Oh, man, thanks for having me, Ed. I appreciate it. Enjoy doing the show today.
2: And we thank you for joining us right here on The Robinson Show. Until next time, I'm Ed Robinson. Remember, Put God first in everything you do and you can't go wrong. Until next time, stick to the script. I'm out. Peace. Available now on audiobook format, Flying High to Victory, a recap of the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles season. Follow the Eagles on their triumphant journey as you witness players such as Carson Wentz, Nick Foles, Torrey Smith, Jay Ajayi, Nelson Aguilar, and Zach Ertz. Pick up your copy of Flying High to Victory, available for digital download on audiobook at bandcamp.com, cdbaby.com, and nimbit.com.